On Tuesday, Russian President Vladimir Putin sat alone at a desk in his residence outside Moscow. Nearly 11 months after he invaded Ukraine, he was hosting a virtual meeting with Russian officials about the state of the economy. Putin said that Russia has weathered Western sanctions better than experts predicted. The statement is baffling experts, in part because it's difficult to know what is actually happening inside Russia's borders. Catherine Belton covers Russia for the Post. It's not really clear what he's talking about because no one really knows what actually the ruble's value is anymore. It's being artificially set by the central bank. So essentially we're in the the land of funny money. And as sanctions continue to cut off Russia from the world economy, Russia's failing war in Ukraine has isolated Putin more than ever, too. Catherine says the war has fractured his support among the Russian elite and has made Putin paranoid. There are rumors that he's spending a lot of time in bunker facilities, but that's uh, unfortunately impossible to corroborate. He does venture out, uh, but he's always surrounded by a a very closely kind of checked uh, group of people uh, who he believes aren't going to pose a risk to him. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, January 18th. Today, how Putin has cut himself off from the rest of the world and what that means for his political future. So, Catherine, I want to start off by asking about news from over the weekend. A Russian missile struck an apartment building in a city in central Ukraine called Dnipro, and dozens of civilians died. Mm. Can you give us some context about how this attack fits into Russia's military strategy at this point and what that tells us about Putin right now? Well, Russia, of course, denies any responsibility for that horrific attack on uh, the apartment building. Uh, They're trying to suggest that they weren't behind it. But uh, we've seen time and again, uh, Russia uh, send missiles into uh, civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. And as its missiles run out, they're using less and less precise missiles. So it looks very likely uh, that they were using a, a missile which uh, really barely has any guidance systems left and it caused this uh, terrible tragedy. And, and Putin really has been using what remains of his his dwindling stockpile of, of missiles to try and beat Ukraine into submission. Uh, we've seen throughout the winter him pounding uh, Ukrainian power stations, trying to and succeeding in cutting off Ukrainian electricity supplies, uh, really just in the hope that he'll freeze uh, the Ukrainians into submission, that they'll agree to some kind of ceasefire and hand over territory on his terms. But we We've seen that's very much not the case, that the Ukrainians won't be bowed into submission in this way. Moving to Russia now, the country is being condemned for a new wave of missile strikes. It plunged much of Ukraine's capital into darkness. So really, it's been a strategy for Putin that hasn't really worked. And in fact, it's just using up very valuable missile stockpiles. Interesting. 
So let's zoom out for a second and talk a little bit more about the state of the war right now. I mean, this conflict has been dragging on for about 11 months at this point. Um, And it can be difficult to remember, but in the early days of this invasion, people thought that Ukraine would fall very quickly. So, So what is the overall state of the war right now at this point? I think the war uh, very clearly shows uh, Putin's miscalculations because, as you stated, people did believe that Ukraine would crumble in the face of Russian military aggression. And this was what Putin was counting on. He'd had sort of scores of advisors telling him that Zelensky would would run at the first sight of Russian troops. He didn't expect uh, the West to be united in support for Ukraine. He thought the West would be weak. Uh, He'd watched the Biden administration withdrawal from Afghanistan and he expected the same kind of tepid and timid approach to to Ukraine. So really he's counting the cost of this uh, terrible gamble you know, we know uh, that the Russian troops themselves were not prepared for a long drawn out war. Many of them were sent into combat without adequate food supplies, fuel supplies, and instead they were sent in with military parade uniforms because they expected to be parading on the streets of Kiev uh, after a week. But that Mm. didn't happen. But then Putin, you know, he he looked to be in trouble, but then he, you know, he's sometimes a, a good tactician and he seemed to reorient himself. He focused on East Ukraine carving out this corridor uh, to Crimea. And it seemed for a while that the Moscow elite, even though they'd been shocked by the initial invasion, that they had not expect Putin to kind of throw down the gauntlet like this and essentially start killing thousands of civilians in Ukraine. Ukraine, they kind of adjusted and uh, everyone thought, well, perhaps, you know, if if Russia can just win Donbass, uh, we'll be able to live through these sanctions, these very tough sanctions the West has imposed on the economy and we can redraw global trade flows and, and start cooperating more with China and India and somehow we'll survive. But then that plan fell apart too uh, by September when essentially the, Uk- the Russian army was exhausted. Ukrainian officials say they've made major gains against Russian forces in the northeastern part of the country. If these advances hold, it could mark the greatest strategic shift since Russia pulled its forces from Kyiv months ago. You could see that in the speed uh, in which the Ukrainians were able to recapture territory in East Ukraine. And even the Ukrainians were surprised by how easily they were able to do mm. it because the Russian army had just run out of firepower, manpower and you know equipment. And this was really a big moment for Putin when he, there were these series of humiliating military retreats and then he was forced to renege on a previous promise that he wouldn't uh, launch any conscription, any mobilization of the Russian population. And this was the moment when really uh, for the Russian elite, uh, Putin really lost a lot of his stature and he was no longer seen as untouchable. He, he was he kind of undermined his entire pact with Russian society in which he's meant to, you know, bring stability. Yeah, I remember that moment, um, how dramatic it was seeing men having to hide to uh, to not be conscripted um, mm-hmm. and trying to flee the country. Um, so I- I'm curious, at this point, what do we know about how Putin is making these decisions? Who is he consulting with when he is trying to figure out his next move in this war? 
We know, uh, and it's it's pretty clear from how we see Putin operate nowadays, that he is increasingly isolated. We see him very often conducting cabinet meetings via internet links. He rarely meets with people at close quarters. And if he does meet with people at close quarters, it tends to be with a handful of very close and hawkish uh, security advisors, uh, mostly with uh, the Security Council Secretary Nikolai. Patrushev, who has been a leading hawk on this war. So he's become a much more isolated president than he really has ever been in his entire presidency. In some ways, that's a consequence of the two years of the pandemic, when again, he shut himself away. And um, even members of his closest circle had to isolate for two weeks under strict presidential guard before they got to see him. And that also meant that once they got to see him, they would only tell Putin what he wanted to hear, because they wanted to make sure they were still in his good books after waiting for so long to see him. Hmm. So th- there's a sense that he's not getting accurate information about what's happening on the ground? Yeah, he wasn't getting real feedback about what was going on. And that also led to this disastrous decision to go to war because everyone was, was basically telling him was that the Ukrainians would, would crumble at the first sight of the, the Russian mm. military. And so now um, it seems he's increasingly isolated and also increasingly paranoid. He does very much fear an attack on his own person. We saw uh, for the first time Russian Orthodox Christmas, uh, Putin didn't venture out of the Kremlin. Normally he goes to a big uh, annual Christmas service at the the Moscow Cathedral of of Christ the Saviour. And this time he stayed in the Kremlin. He was in a chapel in the Kremlin on his own. But like fear is being assassinated is what you're saying, right? Yes, yes. And is is that fear that Ukrainians would find someone who would be able to go in and kill him? Or is he worried that like Russians are so unhappy with the situation that... that I think that he's now worried that members of his own circle could try this. Um, you know, his his own elite uh, has been very much shocked and shaken by the events of the last year. Putin had lost his untouchable status. He, it left him weakened, these series of retreats, and also very much paranoid. So could you explain a little bit more... Like, who is this Russian elite? What is Putin's relationship with them? And why why are they or, or their opinions about this war so important? Putin was brought to power essentially by the Russian elite, by members of President Boris Yeltsin's inner circle, by members of the security services. Uh, you know, they all wanted a return to stability after the chaos of the Yeltsin years. And Putin presided over the country for more than 20 years in this kind of pact with the elite in which he was the guarantor of stability in a system in which they could all get uh, vastly wealthy as long as they shared some of their wealth with the Kremlin. But as uh, the longer Putin's presidency went on, the more he became obsessed with this battle as he saw it with the West. He thought the West was out to undermine and weaken Russia. He wanted to restore Russia's standing as a great power. But that stability and the predictability that Putin signified has now been 
torn up from security service officials to members of, of the diplomatic corps to Russian billionaires. Uh, they're watching everything they worked for for the past 20, 30 years suddenly getting blown up through Russia's isolation from the West, uh, soft power networks that have been built over decades are getting torn up as well. Obviously, Russia's trying to redirect its efforts uh, to India and China, but that's only not really working uh, as they'd hoped either. So the elite are important. And as some members of them uh, have started to like to say uh, in the last couple of months, they say, look, uh, a couple of them have said this, uh, Russia is a country of coups. Every second or third leader is removed illegally. Uh, and when this happens, it's not the population that's the driving force. It's members of the Russian elite. Catherine, I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about who you have been speaking to that has kind of given you this picture of what's going on inside of Putin's inner circle. You know, I've been writing about Russia now for probably too many years, uh, as, as long as Putin has been in the presidency himself. Um, and so over these years, I've been able to build up uh, quite a number of contacts among Russian billionaires, uh, some state officials, some former state officials, and people who are members of diplomatic circles. So, you know, I try to stay in touch with whoever I can, and sort of more and more, especially since the retreats of September, in October, they've been expressing their despair and speaking more and more openly in terms of uh, who Putin's successor would be, uh, what might happen, how it could happen, in a way that I've, I've never heard in my entire more than 20 years of covering Putin's presidency. Wow. And what are the prospects for a successor? I mean, is there an election coming up in Russia where Russians would be able to vote Putin out of office if they're unhappy with the situation? Or is it not that simple? Well, you know, this is a crucial year for Putin because it is a, a pre-election year. He has to decide uh, whether he will stand for re-election in 2024 in, in March presidential elections. And uh, given that he spent most of 2020 rearranging the Russian constitution precisely so that he could do that, it's very likely that he will. And indeed, he would fear uh, standing down because, again, that would leave him vulnerable. Uh, of course, uh, even though Putin has lost his stature within members of his elite, uh, Kremlin propaganda is very strong still, and he still has a great deal of support among the ordinary Russian population. So it may be that they're uh, still brainwashed enough to vote him back in were mm. he to stand in, in 2024. But really, the, the members of the elite that I was speaking to, including a, a long-standing member of Russian diplomatic circles, they really see uh, this coming year, this year, as being increasingly precarious for Putin. And uh, there's also this deepening divide within the Russian elite itself between those who just want the war to stop and those uh, very hardline figures such as Yevgeny Prigozhin, the head of the Wagner mercenary group, who believe that, that Putin should escalate and just win outright. After the break, I talk with Catherine about how Putin's isolation might shape his future strategy in Ukraine. We'll be right back.
Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So given, as you say, the, the massive number of casualties that Russia has experienced at this point, Catherine, I'm, I'm surprised to hear you say that Putin still does have a pretty significant amount of support among regular Russians. Can you talk about what is Putin's messaging to the Russian people and how does he talk to them about this war and the fact that it's gone on for so long and has been so painful for Russia? Yeah, I mean, he he's pretty adept now after being twenty more than twenty years in power in kind of fine tuning the the propaganda. Putin explains it to the population now by saying that this is a fight for our survival, and he 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 tried to claim that the Ukrainian army was amassing was amassing on the borders with Donbass and that there was going to be an attack, and that's why Russia had to act. But he's never produced any concrete evidence of this. But he's explained it as as the U.S. had been funneling uh, weapons into Ukraine. And now, more recently, he's been talking about it in terms of Russia battling for its historical land in Ukraine, that this is land which never actually should have been Ukrainian, that it was always Russian. And in fact, Ukraine was a republic that should never have existed, had not the the Bolsheviks given it away to Ukrainian nationalists uh, many, many decades ago. Catherine, as you say that, you know, I realize that at this point in the war, I honestly can't even remember what Putin's original goal was, right? Like, obviously, hmm. to, inc- to invade Ukraine, but, like, what what land was he trying to reclaim? How much of Ukraine did he believe uh, needed to be a part of Russia? So, so what was his original um, stated goal, and how close or how far has he come to achieving that at this point? Well, his original stated goal was was pretty vague. He couched the special military operation, as he called it, in terms of denazifying and demilitarizing Ukraine. Um, though uh, it seemed pretty clear from the outset that he was aiming to take Kiev, that he was aiming to capture all of Ukraine and essentially replace uh, President Zelensky with his own puppet leader who would vow fealty to Moscow and all his uh, problems would be over. But that clearly didn't work out because of Zelensky's own bravery and the bravery of the Ukrainian people. And so he'd since switched now his focus more to concentrating on on the east, leading to Crimea uh, in the south and the east of of Ukraine. He's since uh, indicated that Ukraine uh, should just accept Russia's illegal annexation of these territories, uh, which Putin went ahead and annexed in October, even after uh, you know a series of of military retreats, and he's he said that well, the war could stop any moment if if Ukraine accepts the boundaries that we have set 
right now. But of course, the Ukrainians are very suspicious of this. Uh, one, why should they give up territory to an invading force? And two, even if, if somehow they were ready to cut their losses at this moment and agree to hand over this territory, I think they the fear is, is very much that Putin would just kind of take the moment to pause, regroup, rearm his military, and then launch a new onslaught on Kiev. Yeah. Catherine, you talked about some of the military challenges that Putin and and Russia have faced in this war. At this point, what would they need to win? What is missing that Russia doesn't have um, that's preventing them from being able to be more effective? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's very clear that uh, Russia, although, you know, Putin launched this mobilization of 300,000 extra people, this partial mobilization and and forced conscription, it's clear that there has not been enough weaponry to arm them. And that's why there's been a pause in in operations. And one former Kremlin advisor, Sergei Markov, has uh, said uh, that basically Putin doesn't have the answer to the question of uh, when the weaponry will be ready, when the Russian military industry will be ready to come up with the goods so that Russia can launch a new offensive and recapture perhaps some of the territory it's lost. But on the other hand, uh, having said that, it's now widely expected that Russia will launch a new offensive. We just don't know when it's coming. It could be any time within the next few months. And it seems that NATO and the West is very much taking this uh, very seriously. And we've seen this in the fact that the West now is breaking precedent and now uh, some countries at least are agreeing to send the more heavy armoured weaponry and tanks that Ukraine will need uh, to defend itself in the face of a possible new Russian offensive. And what do you think Putin is planning for this next offensive? We don't know. You know, we, we've seen various uh, schemes and speculation from U- the Ukrainian side that, that Russia could uh, perhaps launch a new attack from Belarus, that it could even try to enter uh, from the west towards Lviv, which has been mostly out of the battle zones. It's anyone's guess at the moment. It's just the question of has the, the Russian army, has the Russian military industry had enough time now to retool? and provide enough weapons for a new offensive, and we just don't know. And the fact that Putin is so isolated, both internationally but also within his his own inner circle, this idea that he's, as you say, paranoid, that he might be assassinated by someone close to him, how do you think that is shaping his plans going forward? I think he he sees this as a a battle not just for Russia's survival, but perhaps even more importantly now for for his own survival. He's staked his entire legacy as as president on this. I mean, and it hasn't been going the way uh, he hoped. I mean, he did tell his elite this was only going to take a a week or so. and, And here we are nearly a year into the war and it's just they're bogged down in a horrible battle. So, you know, I, th- I think it means that, that Putin is just going to double down. But at some point, uh, you have to hope that he will listen more to the voices of reason within the Russian elite, though it's clear that most of them are going to fear directly telling him what a terrible mistake this is. 
Catherine, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me on. Catherine Belton covers Russia for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Taylor White. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.